Well, I am very glad to be here this Sunday, all the more glad because last week I was not here and I was homesick. And so to be able to come back into the presence of God's people, to fellowship with all of you, is something that I am appreciating more this morning uh, because of that reminder I had, because I missed the fellowship last week. And I thought, actually last week, and I was watching all of you online, I thought of all weeks to miss, this is the wrong one to miss, because it was the whole church gathering, the Labor Day picnics, I don't know if the bounce house was outside. And so I was feeling it, but I'm glad to be back here this morning. I want to ask you this morning, how do you see church service? What do you think about Sunday morning when you come? Do you think of the service together as something that is a joyous gathering where you have the opportunity to come together with God's people, to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is it an obligation and you have to sit, you have to listen to a lecture on the Bible that seems to go on and on and on and on? I have a kind of a picture of these kind of different attitudes in my own home. When I uh, let our boys know that we're going to have some kind of game night together, I can count on the fact that they're going to be very eager. And I can be trying to get work done at home, and I'll be sitting there and answering emails or trying to do some work, and it's hard to concentrate because inevitably there will come a knock on the door. And There'll be a voice. Daddy, we're ready. Now, I'm not ready, but they're ready. And they're letting me know they're ready. And they'll remind me over and over again that they're ready until I just give up because I can't work. And I think, OK, we may as well just go play. <laughs> On the other hand, I can also let them know, hey, boys, in 20 minutes, we're going to go out and do yard work. For some reason, no knocks on the door. No reminders, Daddy, we're ready. <laughs> In fact, if we never go out, it'd be perfectly fine with them. How do you think about the worship service? Is it like yard work? Or is it like when you get together with your family and you have a wonderful time together? Because what is salvation? Salvation, that relationship that we come to with God when we receive his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not just, oh, my sins are forgiven. I no longer am going to be subject to the penalty of sin. I can go to heaven. I won't go to hell. But now I can live my life the way I want to. That's not what salvation is. Salvation isn't just freedom from the penalty of sin. Salvation also includes that process by which we're freed from the sinful desires of our heart. We're freed to become the people we ought to be. And what that means is that we become the kind of people who delight, instead of seeking glory and prestige and position for ourselves, we're now free to give our gifts to the community. We're now free to become the kind of people that God meant us to be, which is one body, each of us with different abilities, different gifts, different talents, 
working together to be a blessing to one another. That is what God is doing in salvation. And when we come together on Sunday morning, when we function together as a church, we get a tiny taste of what things will one day be like when our salvation is complete and we're gathered together with our Savior and we're in fellowship together for eternity. And if you ask me, this now I'm wandering into just kind of supposition. This is you know, just my uh, guess as to what things might be like. But if I were to speculate, I would say when we go together and we are gathered in the presence of the Lord, the sermons will be several hours long, and they'll be very, very interesting. And so our time is a little bit more limited today, so let's uh, pray and ask that God would help us to receive his word and make just like half an hour seem like it was several hours long. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. Your word has truth. It has a foundation that we can stand on as we are here in this world which is so unsettled, so full of uncertainty and doubt and fear and pain. And yet, Lord, you have promised us that if we come to you, we will find a place where we can stand. We will find a place where we will be secure. And as we continue with this book of Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham, help us to see also how the same things that you taught to him so many years ago are still true today. Help us, like Abraham, to stand upon every promise that has come from you. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So as we were looking at or reading together the passage this morning, I wonder if any of you thought, what in the world are we going to do with this passage? It's a strange passage, right? You have the birth of Isaac, but then you have this conflict between Isaac and Ishmael where uh, we see the conflict that had already arisen between Sarah and Hagar come further to fruition where Ishmael and Hagar will now be sent away. And then in the last part of chapter 21, which we did not read, we see Abraham then going and making a treaty with Abimelech. What brings these things through uh, together? Why is it that our narrator, our author, has brought these events together for us here today in Genesis chapter 21. Well, uh, we do see those three kind of distinct movements through our passage, right? At the beginning, we have the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise to Abraham. He has been promising this. We've seen an heir that will come and now, at the beginning of chapter 21, we see the fulfillment of God's promise with the birth of Abraham. And then the next development is that there will then arise a conflict between the saved woman and her son and the free woman and her son. And then third, and you wonder how this fits in, is there's this covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. And so why is these or why are these three events brought together? Well, there is a common theme 
there is a common theme that ties all these events together. The first event is this fulfillment of the promise of God, which if you've been following with us as we've been going through Genesis, God has made that covenant with Abraham, and he has affirmed that covenant, and he has given further promises, developing what that promise will mean and all that it will entail. And God has come again and again to Abraham to reassure him, you will have this heir, you will have this inheritance in the land. And the second two events are related to that because these two events have come to pass because Abraham did not trust God. Now, we know Abraham's a man of faith, but just like all of us, it's hard to keep trusting in God. It's hard not to try to reach out and seize what you can see there in the world. And in the context of Abraham's culture, that heir was very, very important. They didn't have social security as we have it today. The security you had was if you had a family, if you had children, your descendants would care for you as you got older. And so having that inheritance, having the continuation of your line was something that was so important. And Abraham and Sarah had become an old man and an old woman. We see that at the birth of Isaac, that Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. And so they had waited year after year until uh, what they uh, use as a euphemism here, the way of women had ceased with Sarah. And so she thought, I'm barren and I can't have children. And so they had come up with a plan that involved Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and they thought perhaps through Hagar we can have that heir, that descendant. But Abraham, in doing that, had failed to trust the sure promise of God that we see come to fruition here at the beginning of chapter 21. And so, at the beginning of 21, when we see that Isaac is born, that's very connected with the very existence of Ishmael. Because Ishmael would not exist if Abraham had simply trusted in the promise of God. And then likewise, we have this treaty with Abimelech. And many of you would remember uh, the second occurrence of this apparently habitual sin of Abraham, who God has said, go out to a land to which I will direct you. Now, there's a call from God to Abraham again to trust and have faith. Well, what do we see? That, that's, that's, diff that's a difficult call to follow, right? Leave, go. Go where? I'll tell you. And he's just wandering year after year after year. And in the course of his wanderings, he goes to Egypt. He goes to uh, here, the land of the Philistines. <clears throat> and what we see there is that in his wanderings, Abraham has doubts. And he's afraid that the inhabitants of the land will take advantage of him. He's afraid in this particular instance that they will see his wife and how beautiful Sarah is. And in order to take her from him, will kill him. And so again, here, in the interaction with Abimelech, you'll remember just a few chapters ago, Abraham had told Abimelech, this is my sister. And thinking that this was Abraham's sister, Abimelech had taken Sarah 
and brought her into his harem, where God had delivered her by closing the wombs of all those in Abimelech's household, revealing to Abimelech, this is my prophet, and this is his wife. And if you don't return the wife to him, you're a dead man. And so God had again come through and delivered Abraham. But again, here we see that Abraham had faced these crises of faith. And Abraham had doubted God. And in particular, with what we see here at the beginning of chapter 21, we see that God, God is sovereign. And God fulfills his promises. What he has said, he will do. And so we begin here with this first <clears throat> event of the birth of Isaac. And this is not a plot twist, right? I mean, we do have a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, and they are having their son. But at the same time, uh, we know that this is the fulfillment of a promise that God had given over and over and over again. And if, God, if Abraham had simply trusted God, then there would have been no need to involve Hagar in the way that Abraham and Sarah did. Look at the language we see here right at the beginning of chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time at which God had spoken to him. God had promised this error. He told Abraham, this heir will come through Sarah, and it will come at this particular time. God has come through. God has done exactly as he has promised at the time that he has said. Sarah asked the question in verse 7. Well, thank you, honey. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Well, if you go back and read the earlier parts of Genesis, God said it several times, over and over and over again. And uh, the name Isaac, by which Abraham and Sarah called their son, is a reminder of their response, right? God says, you're going to have a son. Abraham laughs. Sarah laughs and says, no, I didn't laugh, but she did but God's promises are sure. Now, here we find a very good principle for ourselves, right? You and I haven't received the promise in the way that Abraham has. I mean, God's never appeared at my home, rang the doorbell, I answer, and God says, you're going to have a son. He'll be born at this time. Uh, Irene isn't anywhere near 90 years old. Uh, so we don't have that particular promise, but we do have actually even better promises. Now, I have something here in my bag, which some of you may recognize this. I have this award. Uh, this may look familiar to some of you because I believe some of you all may have obtained this. 
But my wife, Irene, participated in a race a number of weeks ago. And I had high hopes. Because oftentimes these races, they have different categories, right? You know, you can, you can be the uh, top finisher in a certain age category, a certain gender, with certain qualifications. Like, you know, you might be the best 63-year-old uh, person who has only one leg and, uh, <laughs> you know, so. But, so Irene just turned a certain age and I thought, ooh, that particular age might be a cutoff. So like, you know, anytime you're like in a race with other people and there's an age spread, if you're at the young end of that age group, you probably have a good chance. So I thought, ooh, maybe she can like come back with a medal. And as you can see, she did. What this medal says is, what did you say, Jeff? Yes, it says finisher. <laughs> and so what do you have to do to get this medal? You have to finish. It was a 5K, so you know, that's, that would be a good distance for me. Irene did it, no problem. Why am I talking about this? Some things in life are certain and secure. How do you get this medal? All you gotta do is finish. And if you finish, you for sure will receive this award. What do you have to do with God? With God, all you have to do is finish. And you get a much better reward than this medal. And God's also made the promise that he is the one who will bring you to the end. And we have an example of that right here with Abraham, right? Because if we were talking about Abraham's steadfastness, his certainness, well, we've already seen. I mean, we, we actually get two reminders here in this passage. Abraham has done some good things, but has he run his race with that faithful constancy of never doubting and never wavering. And that's not true. But God has made promises to Abraham. And just as he's made promises to Abraham, he's also made promises to you. Now, the one that we all tend to think about is, yes, we have that promise of eternal life. But there are many other promises which God has given to his people. And you see, if we simply trust in the promises that God has given us, and we rest and rely upon the things that are sure, we'll live much more faithful, God-glorifying lives. We'll live much more blessed lives. We'll live lives that avoid much of the sin that causes so much pain and suffering in our lives. And so, just like Abraham, we ought to live lives that rely upon the promises of God, that depend and trust that God will keep his word, and not live lives that are apart from the promises that God has given us. And so, what are some of those promises? Well, one of the promises is that the church of God will stand and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. He has promised that his spirit will indwell his church. 
and give gifts to his people so that as we come together as a body and recognize the way that God has united us, that we'll be the kind of church that God has designed for us to be and we'll receive God's blessing through one another. And so here's one easy application. Consider joining this church. Uh, this Sunday we have a number of people leaving us who have been here for many years and we have been enormously blessed through them. And you could see that Will just this morning was playing uh, in, on our worship team for the last time. Many of you, all of you actually, have gifts that God has given you if you are one of his children. And so consider joining PCC as a member. Some of you are just here for college, and if you're just here for college, we have a provision for you to join this church and be part of this body while you are here. And so we would urge you to take advantage of that and become a member during the time you're here and participate in the life of the church because that is the means through which God has promised many of his blessings. And if you haven't joined one of our cell groups or one of our fellowships, please try coming and seeing how God gives us his wisdom, strengthens us as a body, helps us care for one another as we are united together as a body and use our gifts for the blessing and the benefit of one another. Um, if you are interested in joining any of our cell groups, if you are interested in joining this body, please see Elder Gordon, please see myself. Uh, if you're interested in joining one of our fellowships, our cell group leaders are here. We have some wonderful people. We have uh, Kevin, who leads cell group A, uh, Mike Shaw leading cell group B. We have a whole crew of new leaders for RISE, our uh, young adult fellowship. And so please come see one of us. But these are means of God's grace to his people. God has created the church. It is his creation. It is his bride, which he redeems on the last day. And the church is particularly and expressly God's design of grace to his people. And so stand upon that promise. And so we see here, God fulfills his promise that he has spoken to Abraham. It's not dependent upon Abraham's faithfulness, but rather it is dependent upon the trustworthiness of the God that we serve. And yet, as we come to the latter half of this passage, we also see that the decisions that we do make, make a difference. They're significant. How you choose to stand upon the promises of God makes enormous difference in not only our lives, but also the lives of those around us. When we read through that, I wonder like how many of you might have thought about this. I mean, you see something going on here. Where there's this conflict going on between Isaac as he's being weaned, and there's kind of a little play on words here because uh, his name means laughter, and we see that the son of Hagar, Ishmael, is laughing, and in the context that this word generally is used, laughing is kind of a more neutral translation, but it generally has the connotation, as you can probably see in the footnote, it says possibly laughing and mockery. And so in the context here, what we see is a development of this conflict going on between Sarah and Hagar, where 
Hagar, when she had become pregnant, had despised her mistress, and then her mistress retaliated against her. And now that Isaac has been born, there's this rivalry. And you see that this comes to fruition here where uh, Sarah likely sees Ishmael mocking Isaac and then turning to Abraham and saying, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman will not be heir with my son Isaac. And what seems to be, like as you read through it, I wonder if you wrestle with this. Isn't it somewhat disconcerting that God then says to Abraham, be not displeased because of your boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isn't that kind of just a little bit like, what's going on here with God and Hagar and Ishmael? How do we reconcile that? Let me give you an analogy. Suppose you're the parent of children. You've got a couple children, and one of your children is provoking the other child. And so they're having this conflict. One mocks the other. The other hits him back. And the next thing you see going on is just this huge, full-blown argument. And the two of them are having this conflict. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about my children, because my children are very obedient. And they never have conflicts. So I'm not talking about my family. <laughs> but supposing such a thing like that happened. And then one of the children comes to the parent and says, Mommy or Daddy. You know, my brother, my sister is uh, making fun of me, giving me a hard time. I'm trying to do my homework. Can you please send her out of the room? Now, what might you do in that circumstance? Well, given the type of situation that's going on, you very well might separate the children. And one of the things that we have to distinguish, we have to be able to uh, understand our, um, in terms of how we are looking at Scripture is we have to make that distinction between what God permits and what God desires. And those are two different things. I mean, we see an example of that, for example, with the, uh, the institution of divorce, right? Uh, you remember that the Pharisees come to test Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and they say, why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce to our wives and to send them away? Now, that's worded in a very interesting way. Is God's desire for married couples to divorce? And the answer is obviously no. And in fact, this is the foundation of Jesus' answer. And he says, it's not the will of God. And in fact, remember when he explains what marriage is intended to be, his disciples see that that relationship, because of the fallenness of human hearts, is so difficult, they say it would be better not to marry. Because they see the difficulties of that kind of relationship, which is meant never, ever to be dissolved. One man and one woman for life. That's God's will. That's God's purpose. In fact, marriage is God's picture of what his relationship with his people, with his church, is meant to be like. And so it's meant to actually be very reassuring. God will not send away his bride. God will not ever abandon his people. And marriage as it is supposed to be is to 
be a picture of that covenant promise that is certain and secure and never meant to be dissolved. And yet, there's sin. There's the hardness of men's heart. And because we live in a sinful world, and, and, and here's where you see that tension. God, at times, looks unjust. God can look bad because, for a while, the scriptures tell us, he tolerates evil and sin. Now, he will judge one day, and God will be vindicated. But why does God tolerate sin for a time? Because he loves sinners, and he seeks to save us. And if he were to wipe out all the sin in the world, he'd wipe me out, and he'd wipe you out, because you and I are sinners. But what we see is that what God permits is very different than what God desires. Now, those things will one day be reconciled. But when we see here that Abraham is having to mediate and, in a sense, solve this conflict that is going on between Sarah and Hagar, and between Isaac and Ishmael, we, we know that God did not desire for Abraham and Sarah to bring Hagar into their marriage and produce an alternative heir. And yet we also see the providence and the graciousness of God here. On the one hand, God's promises are unfailing. He always delivers. He never gives up. And on the other hand, he gives us freedom to make decisions. And what we see here is God comes through with this promise. But Abraham's doubt does have very real consequences. And has consequences for him and has consequences for his family. In fact, the word here that's translated very displeased, Abraham is actually kind of a mild translation. Abraham is grieved. And any of you who are parents can understand that grief. Because, you know, in a sense, Abraham here has two wives. Uh, my wife was born in a family that her mother, her mother's father, so her grandfather had two wives. And that makes for a very uncomfortable household. And there's a great kind of conflict and rivalry that arises in that kind of situation. And so when Abraham and Sarah make those decisions, and they fail to trust in the promises of God, there's very real consequences for them, their family, and even for those around them. It has enormous consequences for Hagar. And here's where we can see an application again for ourselves. Because what was it that led them into that sin? It's not an easy thing. I mean, for Sarah, She's putting her own husband in the arms of another woman. And so we know that here is an idolatry. Here is an idol of her heart that leads her into this painful situation. And you and I have those too. Might be career, 
It might be marriage. It might be any number of goals that we have. And we all have them because those things that lead us into sin are the idols, the non-negotiables of our heart where we say, God, yes, I trust you, but I have to have this. You know, there's a saying in our culture, right? It's easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. And what Genesis 21 tells us, that's not true. Because when the consequences of sin have come to fruition, it causes devastation, it causes pain. Because God allows for a time sinful man to make the kind of decisions that we will choose to make. And some during that time find repentance and find God. But even as we learn to trust in God, we also have to go to war against the sin in our hearts. All of us have sinful desires. All of us are making choices. And those choices can have very, very serious consequences. One of the things that C.S. Lewis said at one point is, the worst thing that God could do to any of us would be to show us what our life would look like if we hadn't made some of those sinful decisions. You could have had this life. You could have had these opportunities. But because of your sinfulness, you lost all those things. What might this family have looked like if Abraham had not sinned? And so looking at Genesis 21 here and what we've seen so far, yes, God came through. But at the same time, the places in Abraham's life where he failed to trust God did have very real consequences. And that's true for each one of you. If you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, he will come through for you. And at the same time, every sinful decision you make will have a consequence. And so make faithful decisions. We see one last uh, event in Abraham's life where he now comes together with Abimelech again. And Abimelech is the same one who Abraham had, as we said before, he had, he had said, this is my sister. Abimelech had thought, oh, then I can take this woman to be my wife. And as it turned out, uh, this woman was Abraham's wife. And so Abraham had dealt falsely with Abimelech. But we see here another resolution in, in Abraham's failure to trust God because now he comes together with Abimelech and you see that uh, Abimelech says to him in verse 22, God is with you in all that you do. And in Abimelech's words is the reality in which Abraham lives. God is with Abraham in all that he does. And it's not too hard to see how that might apply to you and me. Because, okay, so here's the joke, right? Uh, so this church is kind of on a hill. Why would it be better if we were kind of like at the bottom? Because Jesus said, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. But if you're at the, sorry, top of the hill, you're high. Sorry, okay, anyway. The point is, 
He's always with us. God gives us his spirit as a deposit and inheritance. If you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. His spirit is a guarantee that salvation is yours. And what you see here is now things are reversed because before it was Abraham who, fearing Abimelech, gave the lie, this is my sister. But now, you see, as they come together and they make this treaty, it's Abimelech's men who have taken a well that Abraham has dug. And the situation has become reversed because Abraham then, in a sense, gives these seven ewe lambs, in a sense, makes payment for this well that actually already belongs to him. And this is a reversal from the arrangement that happened before where Abimelech had returned Sarah to Abraham and along with Sarah had given him many kids. And what you see here is now that Abraham having come to the confidence that God is with him and is recognized by Abimelech's word, God is with you in all that you do, now comes in a position of strength. He comes in a position of confidence and he is able to engage the world. And this is where you and I are also. God is with you and me. Here is a reality. If you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and you've confessed that you are a sinner and you are dependent upon Jesus' payment on the cross for your sin, right now, here in this life, is the worst things will ever be. Things will never be this bad again. Things will never be this difficult again. Things will never be this painful again. This life is the worst things will ever be. Because God's promise to you and me who have received Jesus Christ is eternal life and a new heavens and a new earth. You'll remember a couple chapters back, God promised to Abraham and his descendants this land. And yet, Abraham knew that he would die before receiving it. And yet, the promise is to him. And so what does that mean? We don't know how Abraham worked this out in his own mind, but we do know, and from what the New Testament writers have said, there must have been some reasoning. God will give me a new life so that I can receive all that he has promised. Now, when we engage this world, we want to engage them with that kind of hope both for ourselves. Do we need to fear for our place in this world? Do we need to clamber and claw for everything we can have in this life? And if you do, you know, at this point in time, I'm 55 years old. I've talked to my sons. They say, oh, every day, Dad, you tell us you're going to die. Well, it's true. I'm going to die. Uh, 30 years from now, I mean, I might still be alive, but there's a good chance I won't be. And, you know, another 30 years after that, I'm sure I'll be dead. So anything that I can get, it's going to be gone but I have a sure and certain hope. And I will never be this poor again. This is the poorest I will ever be. On the flip side, we're going out to a world. And it's a world without hope. And if they haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the best it will ever be. And so we do live in a 
dog-eat-dog -dog world. We do live in a world where everyone's striving to, to finish that bucket list. Because if they don't get it now, they're never going to get it. And that's true. But can we engage this world with the hope that we have, the promises that we have? And can we show them? One of the things that we can do is we can show this world how we are trusting and relying upon the promises of God and be visual, living testimonies to the reality of the gospel. One of the things that um, we'll be doing uh, is, is be, be trying to engage this, this uh, community around us to a greater extent. And there's a couple ways that we want as a church both to be engaged within the church and outside the church. And so as I said uh, before, I hope you would consider joining this church. And one of the things that we'll be doing after the service is we're going to be putting together these what we call white harvest groups. And this is groups where we kind of try to have some community, discuss uh, the Bible passages that we look at in the morning, try to have a little bit of uh, fellowship and accountability. And so you'll, we'll have an announcement for that right after the service is over. Uh, but consider joining uh, one of these white harvest groups. Another opportunity that uh, we'll be letting you know about after the service is that we've been talking, we've been looking for ways that we can be engaged in this community and we can be a help in this community. And uh, Irene's been uh, meeting with a number of ladies who are running what's called the Women's Choice Network. And it's, a, it's basically a, a number of pro-life clinics in the Pittsburgh area. And, you know, I think a lot of people were very thankful when the decision came overturning Roe v. Wade. But as many of you probably know, Pennsylvania is not one of those states that has outlawed abortion. And so abortion is still freely available here in this state. And one of the things that I hope we can do is when we're thinking about this whole issue of abortion, the babies are infinitely important, but it's not just those babies, right? Because there's also the women who are having those babies. And oftentimes they're scared. Oftentimes the man who got them pregnant is not wanting to be part of the picture anymore. Can we also have compassion, kindness, and help for those who are in difficult circumstances and show them the love of Christ. And so um, Irene will be going to a dinner this Thursday. And if any of you are interested, please come and talk to her. Can you raise your hand, honey? Um, actually, she'll be making an announcement about it later. But this Thursday, the Women's Choice Network will be having a dinner to kind of help us understand a little bit about what they do and the kind of services they offer. If any of you are interested in going to the dinner, please uh, see my wife, Irene, and uh, she can arrange that. We'll also be having two ladies who work at that clinic come later this month on September 25th, and they'll be explaining a lot of the kind of work they do. And, and this is a way that perhaps we can be involved in people's lives and be a help and a testimony to this community. And so as I look here at chapter 21, what I see here is that God is sure and his promises are good. And yet there's also the injunction and the warning here. The decisions that you and I make are important. But God has given us a foundation upon which we can stand, which we can be a light to this community.
Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and your grace, which has been so abundant in my life. You've shown so much of your goodness and your blessing to me, and yet I know there are so many times that I doubt you. There are so many times that I strive for what this world can give me, and I lack the faith that things will be much, much better one day. I pray, Father, that you would help us to grow as a church and as a community, to learn to trust you so that as others see our lives, they can see that we rest upon a true and living God who has promised us certain and sure salvation. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.